Okay, quick story time. Last week, it was last Friday to be exact, I woke up and I just hopped out of bed. Felt like a good morning. I had worked out the evening before. I had taken a shower before I went to bed. So I woke up. I walked immediately into the bathroom. I washed my face. I got dressed and I jumped in my car. I was headed to my office. And to be fair, I get in really early and I typically start with clients somewhere around six or seven in the, in the morning. So I try to get in around four, four thirty. That way I can have time to write or record or create or catch up. And it has long been some of the best time of my day. It's nice and it's quiet. And I'm about halfway to my office and it's only 15 minutes or so from my house. And I don't know if you have a, a car, a newer car, but it will anticipate where I'm going to go on the little navigation system. So it often tells me, hey, you're 14 minutes from work. Traffic's clear. Here's your anticipated arrival time. And so I just happened to glance down and notice that my anticipated arrival time, it says I will get to my office at 2.30, 2.30 in the morning. And suddenly I, I could not make sense of the morning. Didn't I get up when my alarm went off like I normally do? And I had obviously looked at my phone because I was listening to an audio book in my headphones on my way out the door getting to my car. And so I, I bring up my alarm app at that time. And sure enough, there was an alarm set for 315 with a backup alarm set for 330, which honestly led to even more con confusion. So long story, well, even longer. And by the way, that is one of my favorite lines because as somebody who listens to people's stories for a living, the phrase long story short when I'm often thinking, well, let's be honest, this story is going a little bit longer than that. And that is exactly what I'm doing. But so long story, even made longer, I get to my office and I'm immediately met with, am I starting to lose it mentally or, or what just happened? And I eventually came to just a little bit of acceptance as in, well, that happened. That's pretty interesting. So where are we going on today's episode? Is it acceptance? No, it's not it. I've done a lot on acceptance of saying, well, that happened. Or early risers versus night owls. And it's not about that either, although that would be a good episode. I haven't done one on that in over three years. And there's actually a lot of fascinating data there. But this was simply just a story, the end. And uh, just isn't that interesting? And have you ever done something like that? Or I'm, I guess I'm just looking to have a shared experience with people that are listening to my podcast or share a laugh. But no, on today's episode, it's on a particular type of story that can be quite powerful. Today, we're going to talk about the power of the metaphor, because I ran into one last week in session. And honestly, it was difficult not to then try and thread this metaphor into everything that I'm currently working with. And there are a lot of metaphors in the particular type of therapy I love, acceptance and commitment therapy. But for some reason, I've been almost afraid to embrace the metaphor. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about some metaphors that, that may really help. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about three metaphors that, according to an article from Medium.com by uh, a writer, Brian Penny, PhD candidate, is uh, these are three metaphors that can lead to a lifetime of happiness. So that's pretty promising, right? So we're going to cover that and so much more on today's episode of The Virtual Couch. Welcome to episode 269 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified mindful habit coach and writer, speaker, husband, father, four, ultra marathon runner and creator of The Path Back, which is an online pornography recovery program that is helping people of all walks of life turn away from pornography as a coping mechanism, put it in the rearview mirror and all done in a strength based, hold the shame, become the person that you always wanted to be the way. So if you're interested, go to pathbackrecovery.com 
and uh, download. There's a little ebook there. It's not, not a small and size ebook, but a short ebook that will uh, describe five myths that people make often when they're trying to put things like pornography in the rearview mirror. So check that out at pathbackrecovery.com and uh, go to tonyoverbay.com. Still, there's a free parenting course. Another round of the magnetic marriage course is coming up soon. So go to tonyoverbay.com to find out more. So let's get to today's episode, today's topic. This is on three metaphors that lead to a lifetime of happiness by Brian Penny. And I'm pretty sure that I've got the name correct, but it's Penny spelled P-E-N-N-I-E. And, uh, and honestly, I went into a deep dive on just wanting to give him proper attribution because this is from a medium.com article, but I know that a lot of people, you can submit articles to places like medium.com. They'll cover them if they, if they like the content, but it isn't that Brian writes for medium. But if you go to Brian Penny and that's B-R-I-A-N-P-E-N-N-I-E.com, He's a, he's a fascinating person. Just quickly on his about, he says, hi, my name's Brian Penny. I'm the, I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I'm a PhD candidate, university lecturer, and a life change strategist. And he says, my life used to be very different. However, on October 8th of 2013, I experienced my first day clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction. So very fascinating person. But he wrote this article called How to Avoid Psychological Traps, which are three powerful metaphors to help you see more clearly. And so I mentioned in the introduction that in the therapy model that I love, acceptance and commitment therapy, they use a lot of metaphors. And I have stayed away from using metaphors. And it's one of those things where I, I wasn't exactly sure. So I had to do a little bit of exploration today and why. And I did a, a episode on my podcast. It was quite a while ago where I talked about the power of story and how important or powerful a story can be. But that I think as a couples therapist, and we're talking a thousand couples down, down the road later, where I watch often people use a story almost in a weaponized way. Again, I love stories. I tell stories all the time. I hear stories. That's, that's part of, again, how I make my living. So I was trying to actually think of a good example of this. So here's one that is very real. It's one that comes up in couples therapy. So if you are a couple that I have met with and you think, oh my gosh, he's talking about us. I'm truly not. Uh, that's how common the story is. It's very common. So in most every, um, I don't know, I'll scratch that. I'm going to say pretty much every couple's relationship I work with, there is a higher desire partner and a lower desire partner when it comes to physical intimacy. And listen to the way I'm phrasing that. Uh, when it comes to physical intimacy, a higher desire, a lower desire. Sometimes I realize that I, I try to allude to things as if my podcast is being piped into Mrs. Johnson's third grade class. So let's just be honest here. I'm talking about sex and couples. And so typically I find that one of the spouses would like to have sex more often than the other. And stereotypically, uh, by a pretty wide margin, the man typically wants to have more sex than the woman. So here's the way a story can be used in this situation. And I don't want to sound dramatic, but uh, almost weaponized to a point. So the example will be given that the couple will be outside working in the yard, or they will be in bed at the end of the day, or they'll be on a road trip, and the wife in this situation, the lower desire partner, will ask the husband if they will do something for them. Will they stop at the next rest stop because the wife wants to go to the bathroom or stretch her legs or get a drink? Or if they're working in the yard and the wife is thirsty, will the husband run in and get her a drink of water? Or if they're laying in bed and the wife forgot to check the back door to see if it's locked, would the husband mind going downstairs to check? And in those scenarios, he may not really be interested in doing these things, but he says he's, he's happy to. And then when he then asks for sex at the end of the day, the wife might respond that she is too tired or she's felt like she's been pawed all day by little kids. So she's just a little bit physically overwhelmed. And could she get a rain check? So the husband in this scenario will tell the story oftentimes staying in the hypothetical, but saying that he would be more willing to get that. He's more than willing to get the glass of water or check the door locks or stop at the next rest stop, even if he doesn't want to. 
So then why wouldn't his wife want to have sex with him, even if she doesn't want to? So uh, to the point where then she's often saying, okay, you're comparing apples to oranges or those kind of things. And trust me, I hear him. I understand where he's going, but I watch the wife in this scenario typically go pretty flat with her affect, uh, you know, her mood. She may turn away from him. She may shut down. All of a sudden she's not leaning in. She's not saying, tell me more. So that's where I see stories tend to go sort of south. Yes, the intentions are not there to hurt their spouse. My pillar number one of my four pillars of a connected conversation but the husband in this scenario doesn't quite know how to get his point across that he would really love or desire more physical intimacy, or he's, he's tried simply stating that, but he feels like that hasn't gone so well. So the story is often used to try and tell a partner that they don't understand that they are the ones doing it wrong. Like my buddy Preston Pugmire says, you know, they're often doing that, telling that story with their elbow, kind of bumping their partner saying, listen, like this is something that you need to do. This is something you need to, to differ, do differently. And so now what is the answer to this scenario? Because I truly do hear it so, so often. Um, I don't know. I think that is going to have to be a separate episode because uh, there, there is a lot to unpack there. But my point being in this type of story, if the wife is being told that she isn't doing what her husband would like him to do, and then by telling that in story form, well, now she's got to do what he's asking. And again, the genders can be completely switched. The scenarios can be a husband not feeling appreciated for being at work so much, or a wife might not feel appreciated if she stays at home with the kids or if she is the more empathetic parent. But what I hope that you can get from these examples are when stories are used a bit more in a, and again, not trying to make a dramatic use of the word, but in a more manipulative fashion. And again, bless the storyteller's heart in this scenario, because ultimately it boils down to an attachment uh, issue, to someone not feeling heard, or like they don't really know how to be heard. So they hope, they, they try to tell a story to get their spouse to hear them or to understand them. But I think I watch that in sessions where someone's trying to find a creative way to say, hey, I think you're wrong. And so I, I know that that's not what stories are all about. But in acceptance and commitment therapy, there are a lot of metaphors. And I know I can understand why, because I find myself using bits and pieces of them. But over this past week, I have, have a couple of people that I'm working with on a pretty specific issue. And I've been looking at how to implement acceptance and commitment therapy into their treatment. And in particular, it's around some symptoms of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, because acceptance and commitment therapy is, is a relative new kin on the block on how you treat OCD with acceptance and commitment therapy. But there's a lot of cool data that talks about how to do that in, in within each session individually. And so in one of the sessions and some of the notes that I had by a very, very well-known ACT researcher, Michael Tuheg, who I actually have reached out to, and, and he's, he's agreed to come on the podcast, so I'm kind of fascinated by but in this particular data that he's sharing about how to deal with ACT and OCD, they have a very powerful metaphor of basically called the, it's the metaphor of the, the person in the whole. So we're going to get to that one in a minute. But back to the Brian Penny article. So uh, he, he says that he quotes a few people here that are talking about metaphors. Robert Frost, which is a famed author, he says, unless you're educated in a metaphor, you are not safe to be let loose in the world. And uh, in John F. Kennedy's speech about the space race, he announced that America has tossed its cap over the wall of space. And Brian says JFK used this metaphor as a declaration for taking charge of the race. It's a beautiful turn of phrase that epitomizes the power of metaphors, but metaphors can also have many purposes. As uh, Brian points out, they can be used to enhance writing, make persuasive arguments, motivate people. They can serve as symbols or they can uh, help you memorize information or even explain abstract concepts such as life and love and success. And he gives a couple of examples of that. Pablo Picasso said, art washes away from the soul, the dust of everyday life. 
or Shakespeare. Uh, this is a famous one. All the world is a stage and all the men and women are merely players. Or one of Warren Buffett's famous uh, metaphors is he says, predicting rain doesn't count, but building arcs does. So I think when you hear those metaphors, you get a sense of what that person really believes, maybe what they stand for. So at its core, then, these metaphors are figures of speech that are used to compare two completely unrelated things. And because of that, they can be very powerful in explaining very abstract concepts, especially in psychology, such as things like anxiety or resistance or suffering or that sort of thing. So based on Brian's PhD research and his work with acceptance and commitment therapy, he, he listed three very powerful metaphors that will help people avoid psychological traps. Now, one of the first ones is one that I have mentioned before, and it's one that I will go back to often, which is talking, the, the metaphor is fighting with an anxiety monster. So here's how this one goes. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, he says, I'm guessing you've tried to fight back. However, fighting back only tends to create more anxiety. So what do you do? A great metaphor to explain this involves a tug of war with an anxiety monster. So you are holding one end of the rope and the monster has the other. And in between of you lies a bottomless pit. So not surprisingly, you pull as hard as you can, but that monster is pulling very strong too. And that's bringing you closer and closer to the pit. And you feel like you have no way of winning. So what do you do when you're fighting this anxiety monster, when you've got this tug of war against this anxiety monster and there's this bottomless pit between the two of you, you simply drop the rope. So yeah, the monster's still there, but you're no longer in a struggle with him. And so in this metaphor, it's the same for anxiety, that when you drop the struggle, you steal its power. So that's where I was going a little bit earlier, making the joke about is today's episode about acceptance. And when you drop the rope of the tug of war with fill in the blank, Oftentimes we feel like, well, then I'm just resigned myself to a life of feeling very anxious. But I believe it's quite the opposite. Once you drop the rope of the tug of war, <clears throat> that's when you can really start looking for, you can start looking for change. You can start looking for treatment. You can start looking for something else that may help because we're so consumed or obsessed with that, that tug of war of fighting against this anxiety monster that, that we're often just perpetuating the same patterns or doing the same things, which leads to my, the, the second metaphor that Brian mentions on here. And this is the metaphor that I ran into in this acceptance and commitment therapy and OCD treatment plan that I've been using a little bit more the last week or two. It's called the person in a whole metaphor. And I'm going to give you the very short version that Brian has in this article. And I'm going to take you over to the, the, a little bit of the longer version. I want to comment on that a bit. So the person in a whole metaphor, he, he says, many people resist change. They might genuinely want to change, especially if they're struggling, but often, they persist in the very behavior that caused their problems in the first place. So he says, a person in a hole metaphor describes this best. A person aimlessly wanders into a field full of holes. Disoriented by past experiences, they fall into a big one. And the sides are steep and they can't get out, but they were lucky. They had a toolbox with them. And without thinking, they take out a shovel and they try to dig themselves out. And so this obviously doesn't work. So they start digging with greater intensity, but this just leaves them deeper in the hole. And feeling dejected, they give up. And suddenly, like a blessing from the skies, a person walks by with a ladder and they throw it into the hole. So finally, some luck. But what do they do? They pick up the ladder and they try to use the ladder to dig themselves out of the hole. So he says, maybe it's uh, the people pleaser who keeps saying yes. I've kind of been there. Or a workaholic who continues to work 70 hours per week. Or a person with social anxiety who refuses to leave the house. So for individuals who are stuck in these situations, this metaphor can help them to better understand their problems and hopefully help them change their ways. 
Okay, so let me do a take two now on that same metaphor. So I'm going to turn to this document by Michael Tuhig, and this is from a an ACT and OCD treatment plan, and it's that same person in a whole metaphor, but it goes a little bit deeper. And so I want to I want to dig a little bit more into this one. So he says, imagine that you're placed in a field wearing a blindfold, and you're given a little bag of tools, and you're told that your job is to run around blindfolded and live your life. So you start running around, and sooner or later you fall into this big hole. Now, one tendency you might have would be to try and figure out how you got in the hole, exactly what path you followed. And you might tell yourself, you know, I went to the left, I went over a little hill, and then I fell in, uh, etc. And in one sense, that might be true that you are in the hole because you walked exactly that way. However, knowing that is not the solution to knowing how to get out of the hole. And furthermore, if you had not done exactly that and you'd gone somewhere else instead, in this particular metaphor, you might have fallen into another hole anyway, because unbeknownst to you, in this field, there are countless widely spaced, fairly deep holes. So he says, uh, anyway, you're in this hole, blindfolded. And probably what you would do in such a predicament is take that bag of tools you were given and try to get out of the hole. Now, just suppose that the tool you've been given is a shovel. So you dutifully start digging, but pretty soon you notice that you are not out of the hole. So what do you do? You try digging faster or with bigger shovelfuls or with a different style more different and better, more different and better. But all of that makes no difference because digging is not the way out of the hole. It only makes the hole bigger. And pretty soon this hole is huge and it has multiple rooms and halls and caverns, and it's more and more elaborate. So maybe you stop for a while and try to put up with it. And that doesn't work. And you're still in this hole. And in this particular example, Michael says, this is what, uh, this is like what has happened with your anxiety, that anxiety can get bigger and bigger And it's become the central focus of your life. And you know all this hasn't worked. But he says what he's saying is that it can't work. He said you absolutely can't dig your way out of the hole, that that would feel hopeless. That's not to say there's no way out of the hole. But within the system in which you have been working, no matter how much motivation you have or how hard you dig, that isn't the way out. And he says this isn't a trick. There's no fooling. And he says you know that sense you have when you're stuck and that you came here to help fix it. And he says, well, you're stuck. And this is what I think is so powerful about this metaphor that he said that in the system, which you're working, there isn't a way out. So the system, the way you're doing it right now. And he said, things that you've been taught to do aren't working, although they may work perfectly well somewhere else. This is where I've watched a little bit of a light bulb moment come on for some of my clients. So the problem isn't in the tools, it's in the situation in which you find yourself using them. And so what's significant about that is you can have someone and it is an extremely hard worker and that tool of hard work, that, that quality is a wonderful quality, but you can see how that could be even more frustrating because hard work with a shovel in the bottom of a hole is just going to allow you to dig a deeper and more elaborate cavernous uh, hole. So that shovel plus hard work is not going to get you out of that hole. And so I, I thought about this. And so um, I work a lot with people that have uh, addictive behaviors, compulsive behaviors, impulsive behaviors. So take that one of when I work with people that are struggling to put uh, pornography behind them, that turn to pornography as a coping mechanism, because I've done plenty of episodes on that there isn't an actual diagnosis of pornography addiction, that it's more of an impulse control issue or a compulsive sexual behavior issue. And the difference between compulsive behavior and impulsive behavior is compulsive is, is premeditated. Impulsive is not. It's in the moment. You can even have people that uh, get the compulsive nature of a problem down and feel like they're in a really good place. But then because of some triggers, there's a great acronym, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, then they may fall prey to the impulse and then turn back to this 
this uh, problem that they've struggled with in the past or something that they want to do no longer go uh, again, back to somebody turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. So a lot of times people in that scenario that I'm working with are very religious people and they really want to be the best people that they can be. And so they find themselves and, and I feel like the shovel in their lives is they're wanting to be even more, more righteous. You know, again, like Michael Tuhig says, it's, it's bigger, it's better, it's more. So they may pray more, read their scriptures more, um, and then they find themselves not really addressing the problem of what I say is filling these voids in their lives. You know, what are, why are they turning to pornography as a coping mechanism? And, and I feel like these voids, as I've identified, is they might not feel connected in their parenting or their marriage or their health or their faith or their career. And so they're, they're using the wrong tool. So they're using a tool that is a wonderful tool. It's, it's great to, to, dig more into your spirituality or to feel like you are truly in, in tune with God and that you're living the life based on the values and gifts and talents and abilities and all of these things that you've been given. That's a wonderful thing, but doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on that religiosity. Is that the answer? Is that the right tool to get you out of this hole? Or is that a shovel? Is that an absolutely wonderful tool but not the correct one for getting out of this hole. Now, I, I feel that's the case because this is where I feel like people then feel like they uh, need to, to feel worse. They need to beat themselves up. They need to guilt themselves, shame themselves. They need to go down that path. But that's the path they've been going down for who knows how long that has kept them in the place that they're at right now. So that's the shovel in their lives. So the harder they dig, the worse they try to make themselves feel about the behavior that they're doing. If that was the solution, they'd already be out of the hole. So they need a different tool. And that's why I love this, this metaphor. I go back here and then uh, to this example, Michael Tuig said, so the problem's not in the tools, it's in the situation where you find yourself using them. So he says that you may go to the therapist wanting a gold-plated steam shovel, and he says, I can't give it to you. And even if I could, I wouldn't because that's not going to solve your problem. It would only make things worse. He said that if a client asks for a way out of the hole, you respond with something like, your job right now is not to try to figure out how to get out of that hole. That's what you've been trying to do all along. Your job is to accept that you are in that hole and in the position you're in right now, even if you were given another thing to do, probably wouldn't work because the problem is not the tool. It's the agenda. It's the digging. If you were given a ladder right now, and this is my favorite part of this and uh, alluded to it in that shorter version of the metaphor, but he said, if you were given a ladder right now, it wouldn't do any good. You'd only try to dig with it and ladders make terrible shovels. So if you need to dig, you've already got the perfectly good tool already. Back to this uh, turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. If shame, if making yourself feel like a horrible piece of garbage was the right tool, oh, you'd already be out of the hole. We all would. I mean, and that's where I always say when I was promoting my book, um, worked with 15, 1600 individuals now on uh, compulsive sexual behaviors, impulse control disorders, turning away from pornography as a coping mechanism. And I am over 1600 in shame being a component of recovery. So that's not the right tool. Um, the problem is not the tool, it's the agenda. Again, uh, ladders make terrible shovels. So if you need to dig, you've already got the tool to do so. And you can't really do anything else until you let go of the shovel and you let go of digging as the agenda. You got to make room for something else in your hands. And that is a difficult and very bold and scary thing to do because the shovel in our lives often appear to be the only tool that we have. So sometimes we feel like if we are going to let go of the shovel, that then we are doomed to stay in the hole forever. And the reality is I can't reassure you of that, but nothing I say right now would actually help ease the difficulty of what, and I'm still talking to my client right now of the, of what the, what the situation is that they're in or what has brought them there. But Michael says in this analogy or this metaphor, he says, your best ally is your own pain. 
and the uh, knowledge that that has not worked. Using that shovel in the bottom of that hole has not worked. And haven't you already suffered enough? Are, are you ready to give up the shovel and do something else? So that is what I find absolutely amazing about that metaphor in particular. So one more metaphor, Brian mentions one called first and second darts. And I was not familiar with this one. And I really do like this one. I think it, it's starting to go around the, the concept of primary and secondary emotions with a little bit more here. So he says, life is full of challenges and most of which we have no control over. So this might sound disheartening, but realizing this is a source of strength. Why? Because it's not the challenge itself, but it's our reaction to it that causes most of our problems. And this we can't control. We can control our reaction. So he said this concept is best explained by a Buddhist metaphor based on first and second darts. So first dart. First darts are inescapable pains that life throws at us. Might be like emotional pain, like a tough breakup, a lost opportunity, or the death of a loved one. Or it might be physical pain, like a sports injury or putting your hand in a hot stove. He says these unavoidable pains are the essence of human existence. And if you live and love, some of these will fall on your doorstep. I'll tell you, uh, my wife and I are going out on a run on Saturday and I rolled, I rolled my ankle so bad. I haven't rolled my ankle in a while and I have horrible ankles. That's been one of my biggest problems as a trail runner is just sprained ankles constantly. And we go out there. I haven't rolled my ankle in a long time. I rolled it so bad that I felt I got down to the ground. I was really angry and upset and frustrated. And we had to walk back and, and man, it was so frustrating. So, but I love how he's saying that, that if we are going to live our lives, then we're going to run into these, these first starts and, and that's going to be okay. So he says, in reality, however, most of our problems are not caused by first darts. They're caused by how we respond to them. Second darts are the darts we throw at ourselves. So these are our own reactions to first darts. And this is the source of much of our suffering. So he says, consider this example. You stub your toe on your child's toy. That's the first dart. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen. The second dart, though, anger follows. And it follows immediately. And he, and he throws out here, why the heck did you leave that there? You know, for, and for second darts, second darts frequently trigger more second darts because now you feel guilty about your anger and miserable about your guilt. So now you're wrapped up in your misery. And then what do you do? Sometimes you take it out on your spouse. So these second dart reactions are so much more common than you think. You know, he says, how many times have you brought the morning traffic into work? How many times have you brought work problems home for dinner? This is the essence of suffering, secondary reactions to painful events which are often more destructive than the original experience. So what do you do? Instead of resisting first starts, you should accept them completely. If you do have a tough breakup or you lose out on a great opportunity, he says, accept it and move on because it's our resistance to pain that causes our suffering. And, and I know, I know Brian would say this. I know any, any good therapist would say, I know it's not just that easy. I'll tell you, if I go back to this twisting or rolling my ankle on a Saturday example, my, that was a first start. I mean, it's, it happens. It's life. I, I could try to figure out why or blame things on it. There's a little rise in the road, but I ran there plenty of times. But my, that was my first dart. My second dart was I got really, I got really angry. I got really frustrated. And I was, I was literally was sitting on the ground. I kind of think I, I went to hit the ground. I was, it's like, man, you know, because I immediately went to this, that's going to take forever. I'm not going to be able to run for a while. I'm 51 years old. What if I don't recover as fast? You know, I, I just thought all these things and I was very frustrated. And, and I realized, okay, that, you know, I did almost start getting into these second darts, beat myself up. And instead I had to just have some acceptance. And so we, we walked home and, and I was able to pedal around a little bit on, uh, on the Peloton bike and, and it was fine. And, and it hurt a little bit the last, later that day, a little bit yesterday, I feel it a little bit more today, but just more of that acceptance because I don't want that, uh, that I don't want to throw that second dart at myself or at those around me. I don't want to go into victim mode or pity party. It's just acceptance. So those things happen and we'll kind of roll with the punches. We'll go from there. 
So not resisting those first darts, those things are going to happen, but being aware of those second darts and, uh, and how much more destructive those can be. So the takeaway message of these three metaphors, metaphors have the power to persuade the masses, motivate armies and help writers to create beautiful prose. Brian says they can also help people understand abstract concepts. And as a result, we can often then avoid these psychological pitfalls and psychological traps that we often fall into. So the next time, here's the summary, right? The next time you find yourself fighting with life, then drop the rope of the tug of war with whatever the, the event is, the anxiety monster, the depression monster, the whatever it is, just drop the rope of the tug of war. You can drop the rope of the tug of war with your own brain fighting against yourself. And the next time you find yourself digging to get out of your hole, then think, okay, I'm literally digging in this hole trying to get out of it. So I need to look at something different because I might be uh, the world's most determined digger. I might be the, my shoulders may be broad and strong, which might help me to dig even faster and bigger uh, shovelfuls of dirt. But is that the wrong thing for this particular situation? And the next time you find yourself resisting first starts, just accept them. One of the, one of the greatest diffusion techniques you can say to yourself is just, well, that happened. And it can feel, you can feel embarrassed. You can feel ashamed. You can feel all those things that are kind of, but, but you can acknowledge those feelings, but uh, you don't have to react to them. You know, you can thank them for being there. They've all served maybe a purpose in the past, but just accept those first starts completely. So I hope that you had a little bit of a different view on the idea of metaphors, and, and maybe you'll start looking for some more of those uh, metaphors that might help you in your own life. Now, again, I will always throw out the warning. We're not trying to weaponize metaphors and telling someone else that they need to do this. Uh, as my buddy Preston Pugmire often says, I hope you didn't listen to this with your elbow, listening, you know, wanting to elbow your spouse and say, yeah, I think you need to listen to that one in particular. So take a look at what, what you can do to help put yourself in a better situation. And, and then, sure, you can share your, hey, I feel like this metaphor really spoke to me, but that doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily speak to those around you. But there are plenty of metaphors in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy. As a matter of fact, I think there's entire books that are about uh, metaphor and act. So don't be surprised if I, I might share another one from time to time, or if you have particular metaphors that have worked for you in your life, I would love to hear them shoot me an email at contact at tonyoverbay.com. Okay, have an amazing week. I'm going to have a bonus episode a little bit later on this week because I've just got a lot of stuff I really want to get out. And uh, if you have additional questions, just head over to tonyoverbay.com or email me at contact at tonyoverbay.com. And taking us out per usual is the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence with her song, It's Wonderful. So, ha oh, look at this. If anybody's even still listening, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. 10% off your first month. Go, go find some help. <laughs> I could do a much better ad than that. But uh, if you've listened to me for a while, you, you know the better help stuff. Betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Let's get back to the song. Aurora Florence. It's wonderful. Compressed emotions flying past. Our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind. It's Wasting rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside